McConnell after the election saying, like, you need to go with the Republicans can potentially win here, but they have to go with like the Massachusetts, Maryland Republican governor route, yep. where, you know, a, a kind of pro-business, but humane, socially moderate kind of guy or woman, but they just, they have no interest in that. They, they want to be crazy. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a national problem as well, that these sure. candidates who can get through the primaries are not the ones that can win in the general. And um, it seems to be kind of a systemic problem with the, the GOP these days. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by J. Patrick Kulikin. Patrick is the editor in chief of the Minnesota Reformer. And so we get deep on what's going on in state politics here. Um, longtime followers of my work may know that I cut my teeth in journalism covering Minnesota politics for the City Pages, uh, an alt weekly that no longer exists, um, but lives on in a little bit of the spirit of the Minnesota Reformer, which does some of that same sort of uh, coverage in terms of having some progressive values and some voice um, about what's happening in the state. And I also think, you know, for listeners, uh, viewers, followers who may not be in Minnesota, that Minnesota is kind of an interesting case study right now in terms of what Democrats can do when they have power. Uh, here in the state, Democrats control the House, Senate, and the governor's mansion right now for the first time in quite some time. And they've been using that power to pass a lot of progressive legislation, everything ranging from marijuana legalization, which is happening right now. There's actually votes just this week happening that will set the stage for shops to open selling THC products next year to free school lunches was passed this year. Uh, there's a push right now to have a constitutional amendment for abortion rights that would be on the ballot next year. So even if you're not immersed in Minnesota politics or following it super close, I think you know some of the things that are happening here are of interest in other states that have a democratic trifecta or you know that may have one soon in terms of what possibilities that unlocks. So I hope you enjoy that conversation that I have with Patrick coming up. A couple of housekeeping notes. Next week, I will have Oliver Willis on the podcast with me, longtime progressive blogger and journalist. And so we'll talk more national politics with him next week. And if you're listening to this, um, you're listening to it either on Thursday or later because I am dropping this episode of the show on Thursday morning. A little bit of a change up from the usual Wednesday evening schedule that I've been on. And that will also be the case with next week's podcast as well. I'm going to see how it goes publishing these first thing in the morning um, instead of later in the evening when people are kind of logged off their computers. Um, but let me know if you have thoughts either way on that. Uh, new episodes of the pod drop every Thursday. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, great. Please subscribe. Um, I also post the footage of the interviews on YouTube. So please subscribe to my YouTube page if you haven't already and like the podcast that you are watching. Uh, without further ado, let's get to my interview with J. Patrick Kulikin. All right. Welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I am really excited to be joined by J. Patrick Kulikin. Uh, Patrick is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, which is an independent publication doing really excellent coverage of Minnesota politics, policy. Um, it's, it's a really good read if you're interested in either of those things as it pertains to Minnesota. And, you know, obviously, as I was telling Patrick before we started recording, uh, most of the podcasts I do and most of the coverage I do in public notice pertains to more national issues, national politics. But I think Minnesota makes for kind of an interesting uh, test case right now of what Democrats are doing in states where they have a trifecta, as they do here and in Michigan. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's a state that has a reputation for being uh, kind of purplish in politics. But in fact, a Republican in Minnesota has not won a statewide in almost 20 years. You have to go back to Tim Pawlenty all the way back in uh, 2006 was the last statewide victory. And I think, you know, there are some issues happening in the Minnesota Republican Party that in part account for that. So we'll get into that as well. Um, so, Patrick, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, and just by way of context here, so some of the viewers and listeners might be aware that I actually covered Minnesota politics from 2011 through 14 for the City Pages, uh, RIP. It was an alt-weekly that existed here in the Twin Cities and um, was purchased ultimately by the Star Tribune, which, Patrick, actually, I know you were the uh, you were a reporter there for many years covering uh, state politics. Um, so a um, little bit of irony there, I suppose. But um my, you know, the first cycle that I covered, I think, kind of sets the stage nicely for some of what we'll talk about today, because I remember in the 2012 cycle, at that time, Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate here. And that year was a big deal politically here in Minnesota, because Republicans tried to pass both a marriage amendment banning same-sex marriage and voter ID um, through a referendum. And these ballot measures ended up backfiring spectacularly, where uh, Republicans ended up losing both the House and the Senate that year and kind of set the stage for the decade that was to come, where Republicans have controlled the Senate in Minnesota for periods of time, but they haven't had both chambers of the legislature. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but I believe they haven't had both simultaneously since then nor obviously have they had the governor's mansion. So what are your memories, I guess, just to maybe start there of that election cycle? The uh, I think you were already at the strip at that point, but... Um, I, I was not here in 12, um, okay. but um, I came in 14, and so I was kind of I figured out, I got steeped in that 12 election because it was such a big deal. Um, and I think, you know, what, what happened was that the Republicans, and this is a, an ongoing theme here, in Minnesota, at least, is that they just kind of failed to read the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they thought that they were going to uh, do uh, what happened in Wisconsin. Um, they thought they could replicate that. And uh, what they didn't realize is just the electorate is just much different here. And um, there's a strong progressive tradition here that uh, people want to defend. Um, and uh, so there's just a uh, a lot of uh, important distinctions and uh, differences about Minnesota politics that they've misread and they continue to misread up to this day. Um, they have had some success. Uh, they, they, they did take the house and Senate and sit in the 16, the kind of crazy 16 election. Um, but they lost the house in 18 um, and then lost the Senate uh, narrowly in 22. So uh, that sets up the, the, uh, the trifecta now. What's your sense if, um, as it seems increasingly likely it will be, if Trump ends up being again the Republican nominee next year, um, how do you think that will go in Minnesota? Because, you know, for listeners who might not follow Minnesota politics as closely as I do or Patrick does, Trump lost the caucuses in 2016 here to Rubio, which ended up being, I think, one of only two places that Rubio won the Republican uh, primary, or co- primary or caucus and the other being Washington, D.C. But then, you know, Trump almost beats Hillary Clinton. I think it came down to what, like one and a half percentage points. Um, it was uh, too close for comfort, for sure. And then, uh, you know, 2020, Biden won fairly comfortably here. But how, you know, it, it, for Democrats here, how concerning do you think the prospect of 
Trump being at the top of the ticket would be? I mean, do you feel like, you know, this being his third time around and Minnesota not being an, an exceptionally Trumpy state by any means that um, this would again be fairly easy pickings for Biden or, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not uh, reading the room correctly on this one. Yeah, he he actually Trump came close in 2016. He lost by 44,000 votes, uh, mm. which is a small number. Um, but um, the, the one major factor was that a lot of votes went to the third party uh, or, you know, minor party candidates. And, um, you know, I think in retrospect, that's attributed to the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton was did not run a good campaign, wasn't a particularly good candidate. Um, and so then Trump, um, he thought for sure that he could actually flip Minnesota. He'd be the first Republican to win here um, since Richard Nixon. And um, he wound up expending a lot of resources and time here. Um, we're pretty sure he got COVID here, actually. Um, That's right. Up in, up in Duluth, I believe it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and in retrospect, it was just a total waste. Uh, the, he lost by, you know, a comfortable margin. It was very similar to, to 2012, um, Obama's it, victory. It was such a comfortable margin that Trump didn't even try to overthrow the result here like he did in, uh, you know, Michigan and right. Pennsylvania. Where it was yeah. a little closer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although some, act, you know, some Republican activists continue to uh, bang on about how the, the election was fixed. I mean, and this is part of their problem. I mean, it's uh, the average Minnesotan just looks at that and just just it's just not uh, credible. And, uh, you know, I think that you, you're from Minnesota, so I think you have a good sense of this, that Minnesotans tend to be kind of a small C conservative um, and or, or there's something about like the Midwestern uh, demeanor and character. And Donald Trump is a bad fit for that. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's all over the place. He's um, he's just um you know, not someone that I mean, Minnesotans don't invite people to their homes in general, but certainly <laughs> they would not invite this uh, New York kind of flashy guy who is always, you know, banging around about everything. And uh, he's just not a good fit for here. So it was kind of always a Quixotic effort on his part in his campaigns. And I, I think it probably backfired. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to highlight a story that was in the reformer that I think kind of illustrates some of the problems with the Republican Party here. And it was a pretty fascinating read. Um, I believe you guys published this last week about a state senator named Nathan Weisenberg. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I believe it's that Wiesenberg. 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 Yeah. Okay. He was from uh, an outstate area, Little Falls, uh, for people who might know the states um, a little bit. But he had a meeting in his office last week with a group of school teachers who were actually from his district and ended up uh, kind of going ballistic on them, um, accusing them of uh, accusing them of using library books to, quote, teach boys how to give blowjobs, end quote. And, um, you know, it ended with this meeting ended with, um, you know, kind of an explosive confrontation, it sounded like. But, um, you know, this isn't necessarily an isolated case. Um, you know, I kind of had a little cottage industry going this legislative session of posting clips of street Steve Dryaskowski, who's another state senator who's a Republican, um, not necessarily saying anything that um, kind of crazed, but um, doing things like denying child hunger is a thing, um, characterizing white people as being victims of genocide and kind of things of that nature. Um, you know, I kind of swoop in when I read articles like that or see clips that I post like these Dryaskowski clips, but 
How emblematic of the broader states of the Republican Party in Minnesota are scenes like that? I mean, is this um, are these guys kind of the exception? Is there a faction of the Republican Party in the state that is more kind of normal and rational or, you know, is the crazy kind of part of the DNA at this point? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that they they use this caucus process, um, which is an, a longstanding uh, tradition in this state and you know many others. And and so, you know, who's going to gather on a Saturday and spend you know eight hours battling it out in some caucus to determine who the the endorsed candidate of the Republican Party is? Well, it's going to be kind of the the most uh, frankly off balance uh, activists. And so you wind up with this uh, really hardcore uh, right wing folks um, coming out of the most conservative districts. And um, like you said, you you have a kind of a cottage industry. I mean, they have um, I mean, impressive, impressive uh, list just this session of um, viral self owns, I guess I would call it um, you know, standing <laughs> up on the floor of the House of the Senate and saying just, crazy things that nobody believes uh, except them and their small little crew, but they're, they're, you know, they're a force in, in both the house and Senate caucus. Uh, A bunch of them moved over from the house to the Senate Hmm. and um, they're, you know, they, I I think that they, you know, in the the case of Gordaskowski, I think he's, uh, he's got a significant mailing list and, you know, for him, these are actually viral hits that he's using to raise money. So, I mean, it's it's sort of the pathology of American politics right now. It's uh, and it's mostly on one side, of course. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think the problem is that they 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 do have a, th- there is a normal Republican here, um, the kind who backed Marco Rubio, for instance, like you mentioned in 2016. Um, but there aren't enough of them. And uh, they also just have this procedural, uh, they, they have this process by that, that really gives an advantage to uh, the, the radicals in the party. Mm. Yeah, speaking of normal Republicans, uh, maybe a good place to go is something that is really in the news in Minnesota right now, which is uh, marijuana legislation uh, that I believe allows for commercial sale. Ultimately, that um, we were talking just before, going live here went through uh the house yesterday um i you said that the senate version is a little bit different so there's going to have to be a conference committee to resolve those differences before it goes to the governor's desk but um give me kind of the broad outlines of what this legislation would do and i do understand and you know i guess there already have been votes on this that some republicans do support this as well so uh, what's kind of the state of play with this legislation yeah, so it passed the House yesterday uh, with a couple uh, Republican votes. There was one Democrat who voted against it. I'm not sure what the whip count is in the Senate, but I'm pretty sure they would not be bringing it to the floor without uh, majority support. Um, and it will, I think it'll it'll be its own. You know, Minnesota is going to do its own uh, its own thing on this issue as as we often do. But you are going to see uh, dispensaries. There is going to be. Um, a kind of statewide regulatory structure. You're going to be able to grow a few of your own plants and and uh, purchase up to two ounces, I think, of flour and a certain amount of uh, milligrams of THC. So it'll be similar to some other states. The taxes are a little lower, um, but yeah, it's happening. And um, you know, what's remarkable is, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not from Minnesota, so when the idea was tossed around originally. 
I think it was it was pretty late in the game. It was 2017, as I remember there being some fairly high profile bills, but Democrats didn't have control of either chamber. So it was kind of like laughed at by you know people around the Capitol. And, you know, my thinking was like, yeah, you have no idea. Like the public is behind this mm-hmm. and like this is happening eventually. Um, so it did take a little bit longer just because they, they couldn't get control of the, the legislature. But as soon as they did, they were ready to go. They The House had passed uh, the bill um, in 21, I think. Um, but there was a Republican Senate that didn't even take a vote on it. So, um, yeah, it's here. And it's it's just one of a, a long list of um, legislative accomplishment, accomplishments that they had. They really had were ready to go on day one. I, I will give them credit for that. And that's why they've been so productive this session. Yeah. Yeah, and I jotted down a few of them. The, the trifecta of this session has uh, passed legislation protecting trans rights, abortion rights. They passed legislation for free school lunches. There is even a uh, tax cut bill, right, that I believe um, there's essentially going to be rebate checks going back to taxpayers. Is, is Tim Wald, the governor, Tim Walls, is his name going to be on those checks? I, I saw a little bit of debate over how much ownership he was going to take of these rebate checks. Yeah, that was his, his reelection campaign. I mean, it was clearly political more than policy oriented, but the OAS sitting on a big surplus until you wanted to call them walls checks. And um, the Republicans during the camp, this is last year uh, when they still had the Senate and they said, well, no, they're not, we're not going to call them walls checks. And, you know, it was foolish because it just made us all talk more about these walls checks. And, you know, sure, let's have a debate about what we're going to call this money that we're going to send to voters. Um, Walls ended up winning, you know, relatively comfortably as re-election campaign. Um, So, yeah, there's going to be rebate checks. There's going to be a child tax credit. There's going to be probably something to help people with child care. It's a huge issue here. Like a lot of places, it's extremely expensive here, as you and I probably both know. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's one particularly bad policy that I don't like. They're going to eliminate or reduce tax, state tax on Social Security benefits, which is... Mm. Basically, there was a couple of swing state Democrats who ran on that issue. And so now they're kind of like they backed themselves into a corner on that. But, you know, this is going to be a, a pretty good tax bill. And um, and then there's going to be a big bump in education spending. Um, there's all kinds of, of good stuff. And they're they're lucky that they have this. I mean, they got the trifecta and this big surplus. So it's it's just a great moment for progressive policymaking here. Yeah. And is there a faction of Republicans that are supporting any of these, uh, you know, these policy items that we just ticked through there? Or is it still pretty polarized in the sense that, you know, um, Democrats are supporting the stuff, Republicans are against it? You know, I do understand with with some of the tax cuts that it was like a demand Republicans had to support other parts of the legislative agenda that Walls and Democrats have. But, you know, I guess I'm just curious if there is kind of a middle ground here where there is, you know, sort of uh, centrist Republicans or Democrats that are, are swing votes on some of these items. Not much. Um, there, there is in the in the Senate, it's 34, 33. So there have been some interesting amendments that Republicans have grabbed uh, a Democrat or two. And um, but for the most part, it's polarized like elsewhere. There are some issues like uh, uh, uh excuse me, uh, driver's licenses for um, people who are undocumented. Uh, that was uh, advocated. There were Republicans who were advocating for that in previous sessions. Um, I'm not sure they actually got any, they actually voted for it this time, but it, it passed. And it, it was helpful that it had been an idea that had been backed by Republicans in the past. Um, there was another one where we're restoring voting rights um, 
to people who are, um, their term of incarceration is, is over, but they're still under state supervision, like probation, parole. Mm. That had also won some Republican support in the past. So it's, it's helpful when you can, and those both passed. So you, you go out and you can say, well, these are, these are bipartisan ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I want to back up just for a second on the marijuana issue because um, people may or may not remember that uh, there was a certain degree of legalization that was passed last year when Democrats basically snuck it into a larger omnibus bill that a number of Republicans, I guess, just didn't read or didn't understand what was in it and ended up voting for it. This was before they had the trifecta. So you needed some Republican votes to get this done. Um, so there's kind of a weird situation here in the state now where, you know, for instance, there is a liquor store across the street from me that for a time had a whole rack of THC seltzers. And I went in there one day and the seltzers were gone. They sold the shelving up and I asked what was going on. And the clerk said that they took them down because they had heard that, you know, t- inspectors were coming in and finding some of these places because apparently liquor stores weren't supposed to sell these in quantity. Like they weren't supposed to sell a four pack or a six pack. They could sell them in a fridge individually, but not apparently, you know, as a four pack or a six pack. But, that you know, he said, I have them in the back if you want one. So, you know, it, it seems like it's kind of the, the Wild West a little bit. And so I guess my, my question is, um, well, one other one other tidbit on this before I get to my question is that um, so the, the law, as I understand it, is that you can have up to there's a certain milligram that you can have per container, basically. But the thing that I've noticed is that now with some of these seltzers, they are selling like 16 ounce seltzer waters that are like 20 milligrams, which is a very high dose. I mean, this would be like kind of drinking um, like a 16 ounce bourbon or something, you know, like it, it's not um, a light drink by any means. But if you read the packaging, it says that it's supposed to be four servings. So the idea is that you buy one of these seltzers, you divvy it up into four servings. You know, nobody actually does this with seltzer water, I don't think, or most people don't. Um, But, you know, I was just kind of thinking as I was looking at some of these products that I could see it being kind of a political landmine, um, not to mention the possible human toll. But, you know, if someone grabbed one of these and, you know, uh, had one that got behind the wheel or something like that, I mean, I could see it being really bad politics, um, given kind of the loose regulation of these products. So has that been a topic at the Capitol at all this year? Um, like I said, it just it feels kind of like the Wild West and sort of unregulated for products that can be dangerous. I'm just curious if there's been any kind of follow from that. Yeah, I was actually very concerned about this um, when they when they did. They snuck it in. I mean, it was it was a legislative mastery on the part of the then majority leader, Ryan Winkler. Um, And there's this great moment uh, when the Senate is passing this amendment. Um, And what they intended to do was to regulate this kind of off brand thing called uh, Delta Delta eight and nine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can't remember which is the the THC we're used to offhand. But anyway, they they said, okay, we need to regulate this stuff because it was like in this legal gray area that goes back to the um, the 2017, I think, federal farm bill and or 2018, I can't remember. Um, and so there's this legal gray area and everybody's selling this Delta eight uh, or, or nine. I can't remember. But um, and so, okay, let's let's set up. um regulations on cannabinoids and okay we want to do that okay but what they didn't realize what the senate republicans didn't realize was that um by doing so they were de facto making it legal 
um because you're regulating it <laughs> yeah and uh there's this great moment in the they passed the debate and the jim abler the state senator republican from the north metro says we didn't just legalize marijuana did we you know and the democrats on the conference committee are laughing oh no no you didn't you didn't do that <laughs> and sure enough they did and so the problem was that yeah it was very light regulation it was childproof packaging it had to be five milligrams only like low dose and you could only have a hundred you know, you could gummies were a hundred, uh, you could only sell a certain amount at a time and it was, but five milligrams per, per gummy. But you said that, as you mentioned, they kind of would mess around with the serving size. Um, they didn't really have any, they, they put this in the hands of the state pharmacy board who regulate, uh, there's only like 25 of them who work for that board. They regulate pharmacists and pharmacies. Mm -hmm. And I called the executive director and she's like, we don't do this. Like we don't, we don't really know what, so I there was I had a lot of fears that there were going to be all these horror stories like right on the right on the uh, eve of the election or something, mm -hmm. um, and you know it was going to be like a reefer madness situation. Um, there's been a little bit of that, but really not that much. Um, and I and I think the low dose thing has been really helpful in that. Yeah, um, you mentioned how there's been some regulatory arbitrage around that, but I I think in general. Um, you know, it's been um, low dose, low lower risk, and so we have. And maybe maybe there are horror stories happening. I you know we're just not aware of them, but I feel like we would be. Um, so I, the other great thing is it just it it put the foot in the door, and there was really no going back because you have all these retailers, and any retail shop you don't need a license. Any retail shop can can sell them. So. Now they're all making money off this, um, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they would form a concerted lobby if you tried to to undo it. Um, and then you've got the hemp farmers who are, you know, the who are now a good, powerful lobby. Uh, so once you did that, there's really no going back. And it mm -hmm. was just a matter of like, OK, well, now we have it like we now we should regulate it and, and go full bore. So, yeah, that's kind of where we are. And, and I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the, when you mentioned full bore and having, you know, more kind of like uh, shops that actually sell THC products, I mean, which already exists, but, you know, more in the sense of smokable products, things like that. Um, was this was this part of the, the political planning here that I think these are going to be rolling out like next summer, kind of ahead of the 2024 elections? Um, is that timing correct? And do you think that there was maybe a little bit of a thought of, well, this wouldn't be so bad if in the fall of 2024, all these storefronts are opening around the state? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's what uh, Zach Stevenson, the author of the bills, he says that we can see, well, we should see dispensaries open next summer, um, and that's certainly going to be good for um, you would think DFL turnout, um, especially with young voters. The other thing they're probably going to do is put an abortion um, constitutional amendment on the ballot, and that's likely to drive um, turnout amongst um, important DFL groups. Yeah, because. Um... That was a big story a few months ago that the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that there is a right in the state constitution to abortion care. Um, this is actually, you know, I've covered this in my newsletter that in a lot of red states, this has been the path that people are trying to take at this point to codify some form of abortion rights is going through the state Supreme Courts. Um, it was a little bit different in Minnesota because um, I don't think there was ever any real, there wasn't a political threat in the sense that. By the time this case, this ruling came down, I think Democrats already had a trifecta. So it wasn't as though, you know, Republicans were agitating to pass some sort of abortion ban as they are in other states. 
But um, so there is there is this ruling that there is a constitutional right to an abortion, but a constitutional amendment would go even a step further and, you know, kind of have the voters affirm that. Is that is that yeah. basically how that? Yeah. Well, your your um, your timeline's a little off. So there's a, a case from the 90s that serves as our own Roe v. Wade. And then there was another case. Uh, but but despite the Roe v. Wade, there, there had been um, because there was quite a few anti-abortion Democrats through the years until recently. And so there were a number of restrictions. Um, Minnesota was basically sort of down, down the middle state on abortion rights. There was a lawsuit um, seeking to overturn a lot of those restrictions. And right after Dobbs came down, the state judge threw out a lot of the, the restrictions. So um, Minnesota became a pretty libertarian on abortion rights. And then the election, you know, I think when you talk to Democrats, they say abortion was really a deciding issue. Um, especially in the suburbs, but also in, you know, the, some of those outstate regional centers, Moorhead and, um, and um, Mankato and so forth. Um, it was a, a key issue. And, um, you know, I, I just think that there's, um, yeah, there's, there's now a, a pro-choice majority here. And, um, and just by keeping in the conversation, it's smart for Democrats because, um, again, you have these, this kind of radical right Republicans and you get them talking, um, about abortion and <laughs> they're, they're bound to say some crazy things that scares yeah. everybody. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, we're on our way to being, I think one of the more libertarian States, um, in the country and, and really kind of an Island in the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about a number of the things that Democrats have been accomplishing this particular legislative session. Are you at all surprised that Democrats have been able to stay so united um, in terms of getting all of this legislation done? Or was that kind of baked in, you know, after the election happened? I am a little surprised because with this 34-33 state Senate and there, right. there's uh, there's a guy named John Hoffman um, who I immediately figured was going to be the Joe Manchin of the session. And he has, um, you know, he has crossed over a few times. Um, but I, I think there's just, um, you know, there's significant pressure, uh, that, you know, this is what we've been waiting for, for a long time. Um, we've been working on these progressive policies, but not able to get them passed. And, um, and now's the time. And so, I mean, another big one was, um, a, the 2040 plan, which is to, decarbonize uh, electricity generation here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this, all the stuff that they've been wanting to do, it's like, okay, now's the time to do it. Um, we might not get this opportunity again. Um, so let's get to work. And I mean, I, I've been surprised because I, I did think that there was going to be um, more, at least uh, the need for horse trading with these yeah. members in a 34, 33 Senate, you have a lot of leverage. Mm-hmm. Are are they leaving any agenda items for next year at this point? I mean, they're going to have one more session before the next election. It seems like they're getting a a great deal done right now. But um, what's going to be left for next for next time around? Um, well, I was joking yesterday to my staff that they're going to have to come back and uh, fix a bunch of their screw ups <laughs> this session. I mean, when you're working at this pace that they have, it's there's bound to be kind of unintended consequences and mistakes. Um, but. You know, the, the one, one issue that I think is, I'm afraid, I'm not sure of the status is, is and that's gun control. 
Mm. Um, there are two bills alive. There's a red flag law and uh, a universal background checks law. Again, with that 34-33 Senate, where you've got some outstate members, Moorhead, and there's a guy from Kermantown. And, you know, they literally won't, you you ask them and they won't tell you. They say they're still studying the issue and so forth. So it's in, it's been in, it's in a House bill that passed a big omnibus. Um, I'm unsure about the Senate. And so I think that's a question. Um, and Governor Tim Walls, uh, who, by the way, used to have an A rating from the NRA when he was in Congress, yeah. but he's come around on that issue a, a big time. Um, he's pushing that hard. Uh, I've noticed they had a rally yesterday. Gwen Walls was there. So um, they, that indicates to me they might be a little concerned that they don't have the votes yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, I, you know, I should mention that Walls yesterday, I noticed, was tweeting about the red flag law, which he obviously supports. Um He's been very, you know, and again, I don't follow this as closely as you do. So correct me if some of my my, you know, if I have some misconceptions here, but it seems like he has governed in a quite progressive manner overall. Um, and, you know, if, if you go back to the previous governor, Mark Dayton, before Walls, uh, one of Dayton's bugaboos was that he was very anti-marijuana. And I remember that being uh, there are even some Republicans back, you know, as at City Pages who supported um, loosening restrictions on marijuana, whether it be medical, um, you know, but they could never get anything done because Dayton, you know, basically even with medical was, was mostly opposed to it. Um, but walls, as you mentioned, who, you know, used to have an A rating from the NRA. He was a member of Congress from a Southern Minnesota district. That's pretty rural. Um, it seems like he's evolved quite a bit in his current office. Um, did that take, you know, you'd all surprised by that, that he's, that he's kind of governed as a, you know, firmly to the left of center Democrat instead of a more, more moderate. I'm not I'm not super surprised because I got to know him um, on the 28 campaign. And um, I mean, and my feeling was that he was a politically shrewd guy who understand what it took to win in that congressional district, the first district, which is all of southern Minnesota from Wisconsin to South Dakota border. Um, so there's a lot of agricultural interests. And he was really good on that issue. He was, you know, he's a veteran himself um, of the 24 years in the National Guard. So he he was a football coach. So a lot of it was more persona than actual policy. And, you know, when I would talk to Gwen Walls, his wife, who's very influential, I think, um, and there it's a political partnership, you know, you really got a sense of where their head was at when it came to policy. So, you know, there's some issues where he's been, I think, disappointing to progressives. There's, I mean, as you know, um, Minneapolis um, and then uh, Brooklyn Center went through a lot with police um, killings of mm -hmm. folks. And Walls was, especially in the in the case of Dante Wright's killing in the aftermath, he was really committed to the fact that they were not going to burn down that police station in Brooklyn Center. And, mm -hmm. and that meant some pretty harsh tactics. And this really... Uh, alienated a lot of progressive activists. Um, but in general, if you look at the scoreboard, um, yeah, you're right. He's definitely um, been a progressive governor. And on that marijuana issue in particular, Mark Dayton had um, a history of substance abuse. And I, and I think that that probably, um, that probably colored his thinking on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a huge uh, defeat, um, at least on that issue that you know, Mark Dayton was there for eight years and he would just never consider it. Right. And, um, and and Tim Walls ran in 18 saying he'd sign something on it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, a couple quick things here before I get you out of here. Um, one that I wanted to kind of circle back to is um, the Republican Party's candidate quality issue. Um, the you know you mentioned earlier that Walls won relatively easily last year. Well, part of the reason for that was you had Scott Jensen as a Republican candidate against him, who, who was this kind of quack anti-vax doctor, and then his lieutenant governor candidate was Matt Burke, a former NFL player who I think Republicans wanted him to run for office for many, many years because he had that sort of celebrity uh, being a local guy who played for the Vikings, Harvard educated. But he just seemed to have a penchant for, you know, like like you kind of put it earlier, the viral cell phones, he especially on the abortion issue. Um, you know, he even had some some comments, I remember, you know, opposing abortion, even in cases of rape and things like that. Um, so it just wasn't a very good ticket. But this has kind of been the thing for, a long time with the Republican Party. I mean, you had Jeff Johnson running against Walls um, the previous time, who was kind of this generic white guy with no charisma. And that seems to be, you know, the generic white guy with no charisma seems to be kind of the best that Republicans have been able to do, you know, going back like a decade now. So I think next year, the the only statewide office on the ballot is Tina Smith's Senate seat. But are there any Republicans you it's kind of have? Klobuchar. Is it Klobuchar? Okay, Klobuchar yeah, next yeah. year. Okay. Um but there's no, no they're not you know I, yeah. Yeah, they're not going to put up anyone serious against klobuchar right um who's just unbeatable here but yeah i mean you're you're leaving out jason lewis who's like this talk radio blowhard who kind of managed to luck win us a, a, a house seat luckily but then he lost so you know he loses a house seat and now he runs for states you know he runs for u.s senate um you know you you mentioned jensen i mean <laughs> He, he's coming out against vaccines when the, the vast majority of the state is vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, we're a public health state. The, the, yeah. the largest uh, private employer in the state is the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Um, you know, so that ethos is uh, of strong scientific institutions is very is strong here. And, you know, he's like you said, he's a quack family doctor um, out in the suburbs. And uh, so he was just a terrible candidate. Uh, Kim Crockett is this kind of, you know, hard right wing. I mean, she um, they ran this video. There were a state Republican convention that had George Soros acting as like a puppeteer of Steve Simon, the secretary of state, who's also Jewish. Um, it was like just unbelievable, you know, and um, the people of Minnesota just I think that we like normal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was some so normal thing. Is there anybody on your radar in terms of Republicans who might, you know, you mentioned Klobuchar. She, you know, she routinely gets around like 60 percent in generals. She's not going to lose. But, um, you know, if it comes to Tina Smith's seats uh, when that's up or, you know, the next time Walls is on the ballot. I mean, are there any young Republicans who you think, you know, people should kind of keep their eyes on as possible rising stars? Um, You know, there's a there is a guy in the state Senate um, who. um I wrote about ones who, who who went to Harvard and and spent time at McKinsey, and he's like more the Republican that you can imagine winning here. But the problem is that just with the caucus process, um, that you it's it's just again it just favors people who are willing to hang out in some high school gymnasium for eight hours, you know, ten hours, twelve hours, and battle it out about who is the craziest, <laughs> grumpy, most insurrectionist person. Um, and, and so they, they really need to, to fix that, you know, go to statewide primaries. I mean, they did, they do have the primary, but Republican voters tend to tend to support whoever gets endorsed at the convention. Right. 
So um, they just need to to appeal. I mean, what I've always, I've written, I wrote a column after the election saying, like, you need to go with the Republicans can potentially win here, but they have to go with like the Massachusetts, Maryland Republican governor route. Yep. Where, you know, a, a kind of pro-business, but humane, socially moderate kind of guy or woman, mm-hmm. probably woman, um, who can appeal to a wide variety and be seen as a balance against the, the you know, the, the progressive uh, overreach in the legislature. I mean, that's that's the pitch. And you could do it. I mean, I think it is doable here. Um, but they just they have no interest in that they they want to be crazy yeah and that that's kind of a national problem as well that these sure. candidates who can get through the primaries are not the ones that can win in the general and um it seems to be kind of a systemic problem with the the gop these days but um wanted to ask you a kind of an exit question here just on journalism because as i mentioned at the top you know before you were at the minnesota reformer you were at the star tribune as kind of one of their big capital reporters um have you found it to be liberating to go from covering politics for a, a large you know the largest newspaper in the state to kind of a you know a strapping um independent publication how, how has that transition been for you it's i mean i'm having a ball I mean, this is the most fun i've ever had um we uh you know i think that we have a little bit of that swagger of like the alt weeklies where we're used to work um mm-hmm. and um and we just have fun kind of poking the bear and um and being really competitive and going after stories we're also i like the fact that we're free um yeah. we don't have paywalls um and so we're doing an, i think an important public service I think it's good for the Star Tribune to have some competition um, to kind of sharpen their game. And um, we've been able to attract incredible uh, reporters. Um, in fact, this morning we just um, announced that we're, we have someone starting in July, a young reporter with a lot of investigative experience. And Chris Ingram from the Washington Post yeah. um, has come to us. And so we're just extremely lucky, and I mean, I'm having so much fun. So I, I would encourage your listeners to check us out. Yeah, absolutely. And not only is your content free, but I believe you also encourage people to repost it. Um, yeah, they can reshare. Yeah, it. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. We we encourage. In fact, I mean, as part of our reason for being is that these outstate, especially outstate, but all kinds of publications are struggling, and and we offer our capital coverage um, for free. They can republish it. That's awesome. So yeah, just tell people as we wrap up here where they can find your work, if they want to follow you on social media, uh, any plugs you want to work in here. Yeah, I'm at JP Kulikin on Twitter, and then we are MN Reformer on Twitter, and um, uh, we are at minnesotareformer.com. We also have a um, daily newsletter, uh, which people seem to really like. They Most people open it, so um, that's a great place if you're if you're a Minnesotan or maybe you're a Minnesotan in, in exile, <laughs> um, sign up for our newsletter. Yeah. And you can also pitch Patrick as well. Cause I know you guys, uh, you accept a lot of community pitches and um, you know, so if you want to write for the reformer, you can do that too. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's been great, Aaron. Thanks. That does it for today's episode of the Aaron Rupar show. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also follow me on YouTube to watch the footage of the show each week. You can find me there at the Aaron Rupar show. 
New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to check out your feeds each week for a new installment of the show. And thanks for listening. <laughs>